The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey, American Hauntings listeners, it's Troy. Don't have enough American hauntings in your life? Yeah, me either. But in your case, you're not chained to your desk being forced to create content for Cody. You get to listen by choice. So why not check out our other podcast? As a Patreon supporter, you can get a new alternative podcast episode every week. And right now we're in the middle of our third season, Sinister, the true story of H.H. Holmes. You know, the serial killer, builder of the legendary murder castle, and the devil who became the villain of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Every episode delves deep into Holmes's most devious crimes and depraved murders. So check it out. Get that new episode every week and be a part of American Hauntings by becoming a Patreon supporter and subscribing at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And now, on with the show. I really hate to say this, but the investigation into the disappearance of candy heiress Helen Voorhees Brock was truly like a box of chocolates. The police had no idea where each lead would take them until they figuratively took a bite out of it. And then when they did, they often didn't like what it turned out to be or where it led them. The high-profile missing persons case turned into a complicated mess of show horses, con artists, insurance fraud, arson, a 25-year-old murder, and the possibility that an animal-loving victim literally went to the dogs. Helen Brock disappeared in February 1977. She disappeared into thin air at some point between the time she checked out of the Mayo Clinic and when she was supposed to arrive at her Glenview, Illinois home. Helen has never been seen again, and her body has never been found although the authorities are still looking. She was illegally declared dead in 1984, but arrests, indictments, and trials generated by things discovered during the investigation are still taking place. Though one man is serving a life sentence in prison for soliciting her murder, the cops are no closer today to answering one simple question. What happened to Helen Brock? The police, private investigators, journalists, and armchair sleuths have all offered their own theories. There's no shortage of suspects with motives, as you're about to hear, but all of them center on the same thing. Pure, unadulterated greed. Helen was worth more than $20 million when she disappeared, and that much money can make disreputable people do some pretty shady things. Helen had money, and everyone around her wanted some of it. She was a very generous person, although there was no question that she preferred animals to people. And who can blame her? Everyone she knew had their hand out, looking for a piece of what she had. All Helen wanted was to live out her lifelong dream of owning horses, a dream that became a nightmare. Now, this is not an easy story to tell. It has a lot of twists, turns, and subplots, and, as we mentioned last week, 
even a connection to several other cases in the Chicago area around the same time. You may need to make a chart to keep track of all the characters in this one, but even so, I promise you now that the end of the story won't change. The disappearance of the former coat check girl who fell in love with the candy magnate will likely never be solved. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America has a long history of strangeness and unexplainable happenings. Tragic events have occurred here and mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those mysteries include unsolved disappearances like the ones we're featuring this season. We've opened the files on people who've gone missing, vanished without a trace, and have never been seen again. Their stories are haunting, heartbreaking, and tragic. They're bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing we do know is that they did happen. These people walked out the door one day and just never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries are unsolved. They are gone. But we aren't allowing them to be forgotten. This is episode 17 of the season. The second episode of our accidental two-parter about a malevolent crime ring that existed as a cancer in the Chicago area in the middle part of the 20th century. And it's another tragic disappearance that remains unsolved. Helen Voorhees wasn't born into the world of wealth. She was raised in the Appalachian foothills of Southern Ohio and spent most of her life in modest circumstances. The red-haired beauty was already divorced by the time she turned 21, blaming herself for the failure of her marriage to a cheating ladies' man. But Helen refused to give up, working in a pottery factory before heading down to Miami in hopes of either making it rich or marrying a millionaire. It was in 1950 when she finally met the man who would take her away from the drudgery of ordinary life, Frank Brock, the son of the founder of the Brock Candy Empire. His father, Emil, may have discovered the secret of making better caramel, baked, not boiled, by the way, but it was Frank who turned an immigrant's candy stand into the huge business it became. Under his leadership, Brock's became one of the world's largest candy producers and made the family wealthier than they ever dreamed possible. When Frank met Helen, she was earning a living collecting tips as a coat check girl at the Indian Creek Country Club in Palm Beach, where he spent most of his winters. Frank's marriage to his wife, June, was already on shaky ground, and it didn't take much for Helen to win him over. Within a few months, he was actively seeing Helen while divorce lawyers were wrangling over the details of a settlement back in Chicago. As soon as the divorce was final, Frank proposed to Helen, and they were married. Well, Helen easily fit into her new life, but managed to hang on to some of her Appalachian roots. She remained close to her family in Ohio and built nice homes for her parents and her brother. Throughout the rest of her life, Helen continued to be generous with her family, and they were always appreciative. During the warmer months, the Brocks lived at Frank's seven-acre wooded estate in suburban Glenview and wintered in Florida. 
They never had children, but by all accounts were very happy together, especially after Frank retired and divested himself of the shares in the company. He could now stay home, relax, and shower Helen with expensive gifts, like a lavender Rolls-Royce convertible, a coral-colored Cadillac sedan, and a white-over pink Lincoln Continental. But then on January 29, 1970, Frank passed away, leaving Helen with the house, the cars, and around $20 million in assets. But what she really wanted, most of all, was her husband back. With Frank gone, Helen was effectively cut off from the world. The Brocks had never really been part of the Chicago social scene, and Helen had few local friends. She'd always been a private person, but now she was almost a recluse. She puttered around the sprawling estate with only her houseman, Jack Mitlick, who had worked for Frank since 1959, for company. Well, as she got older, she became obsessive about animal welfare causes and her own personal pets. There's one story about how she once chartered a plane to bring a sick pet back from the Bahamas to be cared for by her favorite veterinarian. Her two poodles, Candy and Sugar, were entombed next to Frank in the $500,000 pink marble mausoleum that she'd built in her hometown in Ohio. Helen had planned to be laid to rest there too, and I'm sure she would have been if, well, <laughs> you know. Helen also gave money to the Lincoln Park Zoo, which named its primate house in her honor, and established the Helen Brock Foundation, which donated vast sums of money to animal rights charities. There's no question that Helen became a bit eccentric. She was concerned about animals, but she loved to wear fur coats. She was a compulsive journal writer and had diaries dating back decades. She wrote in them every day, but what she wrote about, well, that's always going to be a mystery for reasons you'll soon find out. In addition to writing in her journals, Helen was also fascinated with the spirit world and practiced automatic writing or spirit writing, during which the writer enters a trance state and his or her hand is guided to write words and phrases by ghosts. She frequently conducted automatic writing sessions and used the results from those sessions for guidance in her daily life. Well, as mentioned, Helen never had much use for Chicago society folks, preferring to stay in touch with friends from her old days. In addition to her journaling, she would spend hours every day on the telephone with her friends, chatting about anything and everything that came up. There was one person she called every day, and that was her personal psychic medium with whom she shared the results of her automatic writing. Helen spent the next three years devoted to her causes, her journals, frank memories, and the spirit world, but by chance, her Florida landlord introduced her to a handsome, middle-aged man named Richard Bailey, the owner of Bailey's Stables and Country Club Stables. Helen was delighted with the meeting and thought Bailey was absolutely charming. And of course he was. See, she had no idea he was a notorious con artist who was always on the lookout for rich widows. 
Their first meeting occurred at the Morton House, a famous restaurant located in Morton Grove, Illinois, located at the edge of a Cook County Forest Preserve. In those days, the restaurant was a favorite lunch destination for two martini lunch businessmen, their much younger secretaries, and men like Bailey, a sleazy gigolo who spent most of his time seducing older women. We'll never know what Helen saw in Richard Bailey. Women found him to be sensitive and caring, the so-called new kind of man of the early 1970s, but it's hard to believe that Helen could be naive enough to think Bailey only wanted to steal her heart, not her substantial bank account. But maybe by then, the years of loneliness had taken their toll on her, and she didn't try and resist the younger man's flattery and attention. She was 62 years old by this time, and Bailey was a dashing 44. In 1974, Helen confided to Bailey that she was interested in racehorses. Did he know anyone that might be looking for an investor? Well, you bet he did. He quickly arranged through his brother, Paul Bailey, the sale of three horses, every one of them ready for the glue factory. Helen paid $50,000 for the horses, which cost Bailey only $9,000. Of course, Helen didn't know this, or she likely wouldn't have dropped another substantial amount of money on a group of breeding horses that Bailey recommended too. On New Year's Eve, 1976, just six weeks before she vanished, Helen and Bailey celebrated at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. In January, Helen left for her vacation home on Tappan Lake in Ohio, where she planned to meet up with old friends. It was around this time that Bailey arranged an elaborate horse show for Helen, hoping to get her to invest another $150,000 for more worthless horses. But this time, Helen was suspicious. She hired an appraiser who recommended that she invest nothing more in the original three horses she'd gotten from Bailey and add no other horses from him to her stable. Well, furious at Bailey over what she now realized was a swindle, Helen screamed at Bailey and his workmen, threatening to go to the state's attorney. She expressed these intentions to a friend who promised to introduce her to prosecutors who'd be willing to investigate the matter. And after that, things start to get a little harder to follow. Rochester, Minnesota is a very cold place in February, even colder than Chicago, and that's saying something. But the city is prepared for it. For most outpatients who travel a long distance for an appointment at the world-renowned Mayo Clinic, it isn't necessary to brave the frigid winter chill when they're going from hotel to hospital. A tunnel was built years ago to shield them from the wind and cold temperatures. And on February 17, 1977, using this tunnel to get back to her hotel, it became one of the last places that anyone would admit to seeing Helen Brock. That morning, she had a brief uneventful checkup at the clinic where her doctors pronounced her fit and in good health. She paid her bill and walked back to the hotel to gather her things. She was scheduled to fly back to Chicago that day. After checking out of the hotel, she stopped in at the gift shop and charged $41 worth of cosmetics. Her last words to the clerk are still a little confusing. I'm in a hurry, she said. My houseman is waiting. Well, the clerk would later swear that Helen used the word houseman and said it in the present tense. 
as if he were outside the hotel, even though Helen had traveled to Rochester alone. The only person who fits the bill as her houseman was Jack Mitlick, Frank Brock's longtime employee who had stayed to run the household for Helen after Frank had died. Matlick was married and didn't live at the estate. Despite rumors, there's no evidence their relationship was anything other than a friendly employer-employee one. Helen considered Jack to be indispensable and relied on him extensively to keep the estate running smoothly. Well, it's unknown where Helen went after leaving the hotel, but Matlick later told investigators that he did not accompany Helen to Minnesota, but he did pick her up at O'Hare Airport that afternoon. The crew on the flight from Rochester to Chicago, however, had no recollection of anyone fitting Helen's description on the flight that day. Well, if Jack Mitlick is to be believed, and there are a lot of people who don't trust his story, he picked Helen up and drove her to Glenview. He said she was irritated when he arrived because he was driving a Jeep and not her Lincoln Continental. He explained he'd been out running errands and didn't have time to change cars. Matlick lived in a home that the Brocks owned in Schaumburg and usually only stayed at the estate when Helen wasn't home. For some reason, though, on this day, he called his wife and told her he was staying in Glenview for the weekend. He told her that he had a lot of work to do. He later told the authorities that Helen stayed home alone that weekend. She planned to take a trip to Florida on Monday so she could handle the details of a condominium purchase she'd recently made. She wanted to get ready for that, and he added that a few friends had stopped by to see her over the weekend, but she'd instructed Matlick to tell them that she wasn't available. Well, this conveniently means that absolutely no one but Matlick saw or talked to Helen that entire weekend. Well, this was unusual, but not impossible. Helen did like her privacy. But what stretches the limits of the imagination is that Helen, who talked incessantly on the telephone, never made or received a call all weekend. At least a dozen calls were made to the house, but none of them reached Helen. On Monday morning, Matlick said he drove Helen to the airport without any luggage, or a plane ticket. She typically traveled with several suitcases of clothing and was meticulous about her travel plans. In addition, she was not an early riser and was typically late for everything. For that reason, she always flew in the afternoon. On this day though, she was allegedly at the airport at 7 a.m., even though the first flight to Florida didn't depart for another three hours. And one more odd thing. It was customary for Helen to ask a friend of hers who lived in Fort Lauderdale, Douglas Stevens, to pick her up at the airport when she arrived. Well, the police would later discover that Doug had no idea that she was coming. And then things got even weirder after that. Over that weekend, Matlick told detectives that Helen had signed several checks, including a few that were made out to him or benefited him in some way. The checks totaled more than $15,000. When the signatures on the checks were later determined to be forgeries, Matlick told the police that Helen had injured her hand while packing and had signed them with her left hand. Uh, but this is even weirder. The signatures on the checks weren't Helen's, but handwriting experts determined that they hadn't been signed by Jack Mitlick either. 
They were never tested against any other samples, so we still don't know who signed those checks. And this just keeps getting better. Years later, Matlick's then ex-wife would say that Jack had called her in Schaumburg on February 17th to tell her that Helen had not returned from the Mayo Clinic and that he was going to stay at the estate and wait for her. Over that weekend, Matlick had purchased an attachment for a blender. The attachment was a meat grinder. Now, that was her story, but what we do know is that Matlick did have the carpeting replaced in one of the rooms at the house and had that same room repainted. But the contractors who did the work, though, later testified that nothing was out of the ordinary with the room. The meat grinder attachment that his ex-wife described, which of course led to speculation that Helen had been murdered, ground up, and yes, fed to her dogs, was later found to be much too small to accomplish such a gruesome task. But it does make a great story though, doesn't it? Anyway, Matlick waited two weeks from the date that he said he dropped Helen off for her trip to Florida before he reported her missing. Two weeks. He went to the Glenview Police Department to file a missing persons report, only to be told that only a family member could make the report. So Matlick then contacted Helen's only living relative, her brother, Charles. Charles Voorhees immediately flew to Chicago to file the report. Before going to the police station, they asked the authorities to look for his missing sister, though. Charles and Matlick stopped by his sister's estate to look things over. Charles had benefited from having a wealthy sister for many years, but not to any great extent. He was a retired railroad worker who did just fine for himself. He'd accepted Helen's annual gifts, but had never expressed any interest in her money. Charles seems to be one of the few good guys in this story, but if he was, it still doesn't mean he was smart. He followed Matlick's lead as they searched the house for clues and then incredibly agreed with Matlick when he told him that it had been his sister's wishes that all her journals and automatic writings be destroyed if, quote, anything should happen to her. Well, despite the fact she'd only been gone two weeks and there was no evidence yet that she'd met with foul play and no evidence that anything had happened to her other than a deviation from her normal routine and that such documents might have provided important clues for the people who wanted to find her, Charles allowed Matlick to burn the papers. Whatever had been in them was now gone forever. Well, after that, having undoubtedly destroyed valuable information about his sister's whereabouts, Charles went to the Glenview police station and filed a missing persons report. Investigators were, needless to say, baffled by Helen's disappearance and frustrated by the actions of her brother and houseman. For very good reason, they immediately focused their attention on Jack Matlick. There hadn't been any ransom demand for Helen's return, they said, and Matlick's claim of dropping her off at O'Hare Airport with no luggage and no plane ticket was pretty ridiculous. But even after hours of questioning, Matlick stuck to his story. The only thing he admitted to was arguing with Helen over the sale of an automobile. But beyond that, he said they got along fine. He also refused to reverse his story about Helen signing the checks with her alternate hand. Eventually, he was convinced to take a series of polygraph tests, but the results turned out to be inconclusive. 
He told the police over and over that he had nothing to do with Helen's disappearance and that he wouldn't benefit from her death anyway. After all, he said he wasn't even mentioned in her will. Well, later, Matlick claimed that he showed a copy of Helen's will to the authorities to prove he had nothing to gain by killing her, but the Glenview police denied strongly that Matlick had ever shown them a will. Well, detectives searched Helen's home several times. They combed the grounds and interviewed everyone who knew her, came into contact with her, or even spoke to her in the days before her disappearance, but found nothing. With no body, no witnesses, no suspects, and no evidence of a crime, there was nothing more the police could do. There is no law that says adults can't voluntarily disappear. Over time, the leads dried up and the case went cold. But $20 million can't be left sitting in a bank account waiting for someone who may or may not ever come back to claim it. And so the story of Helen Brock took yet another turn. years, Helen had become known for being a little eccentric and a little bit of a hermit, but she'd never been known for being tight with her money. And those people who had enjoyed her generosity during that time were not about to let things change simply because Helen wasn't around to sign the checks. There were bills that needed to be paid and expenses that needed to be managed and someone was needed to handle those things. The man with the best case for being in charge was Helen's personal accountant, Everett Moore. He'd been taking care of Helen's day-to-day -day account needs since before Frank died and was familiar with how she spent her money. He was already handling her credit card statements, tax bills, and charity requests, so it would be simple for him to oversee everything. So in the spring of 1977, he asked the Cook County Probate Court to appoint him as administrator over Helen's estate. But there was a small problem. Helen was a co-trustee of the Helen Brock Trust that had been set up in Frank's will. The other trustee was the Continental Illinois Bank. Continental felt that they, not Everett Moore, should be in charge of Helen's money. They were responsible for the trust in her absence, and if it was mismanaged, Continental Illinois would be the ones on the hook. Essentially, what they were saying was that if Moore screwed things up with Helen's money, she could sue Continental for his mistakes when she returned, and the bank didn't want any part of that. As it turned out, though, neither the accountant nor the bank was placed immediately in charge of Helen's fortune. The probate judge wisely decided that a disinterested third party needed to investigate the matter and sort out who deserved Helen's continued charitable support and who should have the authority to make decisions for Helen in the trust. The judge appointed the former head of the Chicago Bar Association, John Mink, to delve into the situation. I told you you were going to need a flowchart to keep track of all the characters. Anyway, he was tasked with finding out as much as he could about Helen's disappearance and trying to decide about how she would want her money to be spent. Well, Mink's investigation didn't go any better than the one conducted by the Glenview police, but that wasn't his fault. The first place he needed to look to find out how Helen wanted to spend her money 
was in her will. He wrote to her attorney, John Conway, and asked for a copy, but Conway fired back a letter that said Mink had no business asking for it, and that attorney-client privilege prevented him from turning it over to him. Till he had evidence that Helen was dead, Conway told him his hands were tied. So Mink took him to court, but Conway still refused to surrender it, even defying a contempt of court order when the judge ruled against him. He simply refused to budge. Mink then asked Jack Micklick to come to his office and answer some questions. Now, by now, Matlick had been fired by Helen's accountant, Everett Moore, and had been forced to move out of the home that she owned. He still asserted his innocence, but remained a suspect in her disappearance, even though the police couldn't charge him with any crime. Well, he agreed to come and meet with John Mink. He repeated the story he'd told to the police and swore under oath that he had seen Helen's will and that she'd left money to a variety of animal organizations and to her brother, Charles. Matlick told Mink, quote, he's going to be a millionaire. Well, not surprisingly, Mink called Charles Voorhees to come in for an interview, but it turned out to be a strange one. Over the course of a day-long interrogation, Charles answered most of the questions with little more than yes or no answers. He rarely expounded on any reply and had very little to add. Was he in grief over his sister's disappearance or did he have something to hide? We don't know. It was the next deposition that Mink found the most troubling, though. He asked Helen's friend, Richard Bailey, to come in and answer some questions. Bailey had taken Helen to New York for New Year's and had arranged for her checkup at the Mayo Clinic, the last place she'd been seen alive. He was supposed to meet her in Florida and was reportedly in Fort Lauderdale when she disappeared. Mink had also been told that Bailey had helped Helen buy some racehorses in the past year. Well, Mink knew nothing about Richard Bailey, so he was surprised when the man arrived in his office with an attorney. He was even more surprised when he refused to answer any questions. He wouldn't even confirm that he knew Helen Brock or even that Richard Bailey was his name. His attorney stated that he would not be answering questions based on his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So for the next three years, John Mink remained the guardian ad litem for Helen Brock. And during that time, he investigated every possible lead connected to her disappearance. Eventually, he went to the probate court and had to report his failure. The court declared that Helen was officially a missing person and named Everett Moore as the overseer of her accounts. The judge ruled that in four years, the parties could return, and if Helen had not been found, they could petition the court to have her legally declared dead. And that was exactly what would happen. In 1984, Helen Brock was declared legally dead, and her will finally went to probate. Her brother Charles was the big winner. He walked away with a nice annuity and a lot of control over the Helen Brock Foundation. Jack Mitlick, who was in Helen's will, despite his claim that he wasn't, actually ended up owing money to the estate, thanks to various loans he'd been given. The rest of the money went to animal organizations that Helen had supported for so long. Officially, Helen was now dead. But that wasn't even close to the end of her story.
When Richard Bailey walked out of John Mink's office on that afternoon in 1977, he must have felt pretty confident that he pulled the wool over yet another person's eyes. Bailey had been getting away with grifting women all over the Chicago area for years, and he probably figured he'd gotten away with conning Mink, too. But when Bailey's name came up in connection with Helen's case, there were a lot of people who were certain she'd met with foul play. Bailey was well known as a shady character among the horse people who bought, sold, and trained the often very expensive animals. He was a shady character who specialized in fleecing wealthy older widows out of their savings through bad investments in horses. Thanks to his many connections among the most ruthless people in the horse trading business, he knew his way around sketchy deals that always seemed to work out in his favor. Bailey's methods were simple. He would get himself introduced to a potential mark, either at his stables or through personal ads, who were usually recently widowed or divorced women. He'd start whining, dining, and romancing them, taking them to expensive restaurants, and sending them flowers and gifts. If he discovered that a woman wasn't as wealthy as he thought, he'd decline to see her again. If she was wealthy, though, he doubled down, even going as far as to propose marriage, even though at one point he was already married. The end goal was to lure the woman into his world of expensive horse shows and pricey stables. Depending on the victim's level of sophistication, he'd either act as a broker in a horse deal, which meant getting a cheap run-of-the-mill horse and passing it off as a champion, or ask to temporarily borrow a large sum of money that he'd promised to pay back as soon as his cash flow problem was fixed. When he worked the loan scheme, Bailey would usually end up having the woman buy a horse form to be used as collateral for the loan, which he, of course, never repaid. Once he defaulted on the loan, then the woman was responsible for the cost of boarding the horse, always in a stable that she didn't know Bailey owned. That way, he soaked her for cash two times over. Once Bailey had gotten as much money from his victim as he could, he ended the relationship, leaving many of them broke and all of them too embarrassed to admit what had happened. And then Bailey moved on to the next one. Eventually, in the course of his duties, it had been John Mink who linked Bailey to Helen. He'd been able to do that by interviewing her accountant, Everett Moore. His deposition revealed a lot of interesting information about Helen's finances. Both John Mink and Everett Moore are two more of the good guys in this story. Moore, in particular, was beyond reproach, and no evidence linked him to Helen's disappearance. In fact, if anyone had reason to want Helen alive and well, it was Everett Moore. His job dealt only with the assets of a living Helen Brock, not her trust. Once she was dead, her estate was disposed of according to her will. His deposition offered make a look at how much Helen loved horses and the depth of her financial commitment to them. In the few years she'd been involved in the horse business, she had easily spent more than a quarter of a million dollars. And who had gotten her started in the business? Richard Bailey. They'd been friends for a while before visiting the Gulfstream Park racetrack in Florida, where Helen had mentioned in passing she'd like to own some horses, and wouldn't you know it, Bailey could help her do just that. A few months later, Bailey and his brother sold Helen a stallion for $45,000, a horse that the Baileys had gotten for $8,000. It was ugly stuff, but there was no proof that Bailey had anything to do with Helen's disappearance. There was still no body, no clear motive, and no clues. 
All the cops could do was stand by and watch as the Candy heiress's estate was divided up amongst her heirs. She had clearly met with foul play since there was no indication she'd vanished on her own, but no one could prove it. Well, the Helen Brock disappearance became just another unsolved Chicago mystery. Every once in a while, a reporter would dig up some clippings and run a whatever happened to story. But aside from those half-hearted appeals for help, little was done to try and find answers in the case. And then came the break that took everyone by surprise. Now, I have to tell you, U.S. attorneys don't go looking for cases. As the prosecutors for the federal government, they usually have more than enough work to do to keep them just short of overwhelmed. But in 1989, confronted with a dozen or more women who'd become victims of interstate wire fraud, Chicago's U.S. attorney began to investigate what was happening in the local horse business. It didn't take long for him to discover that fraud had been running rampant in the business for years or to uncover Richard Bailey's name in connection with that fraud. Soon after, Helen Brock's activities with the horse business became part of his investigation. Well, the prosecutor started digging into the case was assistant U.S. attorney Stephen Miller, a tough Chicago lawman who'd already investigated everything from complicated white-collar crime to ruthless and cold-blooded murder cases. He'd been approached by investigators who wanted him to take a look at a recent horse scheme devised by Bailey that left a woman with $50,000 less in her bank account than she'd had before she met him. There were rumors that Bailey had defrauded a lot of other women over the years using horses, and it even dated a woman whose name the prosecutor instantly recognized, Ellen Brock. Miller immediately came up with a plan to take down Daly. The plan was follow the money, solve the murder. Of course, Miller and his investigators didn't have any of the usual pieces of a murder investigation, but they did have a strong circumstantial case that linked Bailey to Helen but they needed more, even if it was only a single thread they could pull that would unravel the whole mess. And that's when they found Dr. Ross Hoogie. Hoogie was a large animal veterinarian, and even though he played a small role in Bailey's swindles, he was into things deep enough that Miller and his investigators were able to lean on him hard enough to turn on Bailey and others involved in the schemes. He started talking and told Miller everything he knew about horse scams and insurance frauds. Miller quickly learned that Helen Brock had no idea who she'd been dealing with. She thought it was Bailey behind the horse schemes, but Bailey was just the front man. The truly dangerous men were the ones that Richard Bailey answered to, an organized criminal enterprise that saw murder as just another way of doing business. It was run by a man named Silas Jane. Silas Jane and his brother George had gotten into the horse business back in the 1930s, selling broken down horses and using investigators and insurance fraud to line their pockets. As mentioned in our last episode, Silas Jane was linked to many murders and disappearances in the Chicago area including Cheryl Rood, who was killed by a car bomb, the three young women who vanished from the Indiana Dune State Park in 1966, and even his own brother, George, who was shot to death after the two men had a falling out. As Stephen Miller noted, people were deathly afraid of him, and criminals flocked to him as a mentor and teacher. Jane 
was a cold-blooded killer. And one of the criminals who worked with Silas Jane was Richard Bailey. It took Miller and his team five years to put together their case. But by 1994, they had gathered enough evidence against Bailey and more than two dozen other suspects to take their case before a federal grand jury. In July, the U.S. attorney announced a 29-count indictment against Bailey, who was charged with conspiring to murder, soliciting the murder, and causing the murder of Helen Brock. Prosecutors claimed that he and other defendants in the horse business swindled wealthy women into paying inflated prices for show horses. Bailey was also charged with bilking insurance carriers into paying off policies on overvalued horses that were destroyed by unscrupulous owners. No one was actually charged with committing Helen's murder, but prosecutors outlined a likely scenario. They were able to verify that shortly before she disappeared, Helen discovered she'd been swindled by Bailey. She was about to blow the whistle on the operation, bringing attention to dozens of questionable transactions over the years. Bailey then allegedly plotted her death. But Bailey, being the con artist that he was, decided to gamble before the federal judge. Rather than place his fate in the hands of a jury that he knew would be unsympathetic, he offered a guilty plea to all the fraud charges and took his chances before the judge, betting that judge would dismiss the murder and conspiracy charges because the evidence the prosecutors had was so flimsy. But he hadn't counted on the fact that the judge would not only hear evidence about the crimes that Bailey admitted to, but he'd hear about everything else during a sentencing hearing, too. Well, it turned out to be a desperate risk, but Bailey felt he had no other choice. Stephen Miller and his team, though, were well prepared. And in early 1995, they went to court to begin the two-week hearing that would determine Bailey's sentence. But before they even started, Judge Milton Shadar laid out the rules the ones that Bailey hadn't known. He listened to all the evidence and sentenced Bailey according to all his crimes, not just the ones he'd admitted to. Not a single argument had been heard and Bailey was already in trouble. The judge heard all the testimony about how Bailey had driven women to ruin and attempted suicide by stealing their money and then throwing them away when he was finished with them. He'd heard about the various swindles he committed, and most importantly, he listened to prosecutors and defense attorneys argue back and forth about Bailey's relationship with Helen Brock, pointing out that it was technically Richard's brother Paul, not Richard, who sold Helen her horses. The defense tried to emphasize that Helen had not been conned by the defendant. But the prosecution countered with the fact that Ellen had fired Paul Bailey and hired another trainer after learning the horses she bought were worthless. Well, again, the defense stated that Helen's argument was not with Richard. If it was, why had she paid for a trip to New York for herself and Bailey six weeks before she disappeared? Miller put scores of Bailey's former partners and victims on the stand to testify about his violent nature. More than one witness talked about Bailey physically assaulting them and making threats against them and their families. Finally, prosecutors got to the heart of the case and addressed Bailey's motive for having Helen killed. She knew she'd been duped and she was going to the authorities. She wanted Bailey in jail and she told him so. Once Helen confronted him, Bailey had to act. It was damage control. The only way to protect himself was to silence her. While Bailey's gamble to take his case straight to the judge didn't pay off. The judge decided that it was more than probable that Bailey conspired and solicited Helen's murder. 
and he sentenced Richard Bailey to life in prison plus a fine of $1 million. Judge Shatter was later forced to revise the sentence to 30 years in prison, but that was still essentially a life behind bars for a man who was now 67 years old. Bailey had received his well-deserved punishment, but the mystery of what happened to Helen Brock? Yeah, still unsolved. Upside to all this was that a lot of people were indicted at the same time that Richard Bailey was. And as a result, the authorities uncovered a nationwide horse killing and insurance fraud scheme that ended with 16 guilty pleas for those involved. But that was just the beginning. Through 2002, the probe into the disappearance of the Candy Heiress resulted in 36 other convictions on a range of charges that included fraud, arson, and obstruction of justice. And also, as mentioned in our last episode, while looking for Helen's killer, the authorities solved the murders of Bobby Peterson and Anton and John Schusler, who'd been killed in 1955 by a man who was also suspected of playing a role in Helen's murder. Helen's body, though, still hadn't been found, and neither had her killer. But then, in March 2005, just as Chicago was starting to shake off the chill of the winter, things in Helen's case started heating up all over again. By now, Richard Bailey was almost a decade into his 30-year sentence, and no one in law enforcement circles ever expected to hear from him again. So they were surprised when his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, filed a brief with the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing for a new sentencing hearing for him. She asked the court to order federal judge Milton Shatter to re-sentence Bailey in light of the fact that someone else had killed Helen. If an unnamed informant who had apparently confessed his involvement in the murder to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was to be believed, then Bailey had nothing to do with Helen's death, and for that reason, didn't deserve the sentence he'd been given. Well, according to the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, the appeals court had 30 days to decide whether to grant Bailey's motion for a new sentencing hearing. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you that the court filing ignited fresh interest in the long unsolved case, and it was just about to get even more sensational. At the time Zellner filed the paperwork, the name of the confidential informant was blacked out, but before long, his identity was no longer a secret. He'd been granted immunity and was now saying he might write a book about the case. The informant was a former Chicago horseman named Joseph Plemons, and according to his story, Helen was either beaten or strangled, and her body was dumped in a steel furnace in Gary, Indiana. She'd been picked up after leaving the Mayo Clinic and returned to Chicago by car, where she was killed because she planned to go to the authorities to file a criminal complaint that she'd been defrauded by crooked horse traders. Well, Plemons, who had testified at Bailey's original sentencing hearing that the con man had once tried to hire him to kill Helen, admitted that he fired two gunshots into Helen's already battered body. He said he thought Helen was already dead when he was forced at gunpoint to shoot her because someone else thought they heard her moan as she was unloaded from the trunk of a Cadillac and placed into a waiting station wagon. In Plemons' version of events, he received a call one night from a man named Kenneth Hansen, who worked for Silas Jane and was later convicted of the Schusler peterson murders. He was told to come to a stable in Tenley Park. 
After Plemons arrived, a Cadillac pulled into the riding ring and the trunk was opened to reveal Helen, who was beaten and bruised. She was moved to another car and Hanson's brother, Kurt, a reputed hitman for the mob, ordered Plemons to shoot Helen or be killed himself. Put holes in the blanket or there'll be two of you in the station wagon, Kurt Hansen allegedly told him. Afraid of being murdered, Plemons had shot her twice. With Kenneth Hansen in prison for murder and Kurt Hansen dead by the time Plemons came forward, there was no one to back up the story. However, Plemons did have a piece of evidence he said proved he was telling the truth, a ruby ring that belonged to Helen. He claimed that when he moved Helen's body from the Cadillac to the station wagon, the ring had fallen off her hand and he'd stuck it in his pocket. Well, Cook County officials, however, were unable to prove through DNA or through Helen's surviving friends or relatives that the ring was actually hers. It's still in the evidence room at the Glenview, Illinois Police Department, but whether it belonged to Helen, well, that remains a mystery. But back to Richard Bailey. According to Plemons, it had not been Bailey who had ordered Helen to be killed. It was Silas Jane who was conveniently also dead by this time. The court was unimpressed with the new bombshell revelations and issued a terse two-paragraph opinion that rejected Bailey's request for a new sentencing hearing. It simply stated that the new evidence didn't do anything to show that Bailey was innocent of planning or paying for Helen's murder. Eventually, though, Richard Bailey would get out of prison, which would, again, stir up interest in Helen's case. Bailey was released in 2019 at the age of 90. The known predator of widows and divorcees with hefty bank accounts admitted in an interview that he had conned Helen, but denied any role in her disappearance. He claimed his interest in Helen was different than the others he'd preyed on because, quote, we was madly in love with each other. And yes, that is an exact quote. Bailey confessed that he'd known about the plans for Helen's murder, but had no part in them. He claimed a half dozen people were involved in the planning, including Jack Metlick, another guy who denied being part of Helen's disappearance and death. Bailey added that Joe Plemons was involved, as were a pair of Chicago mobsters who had disposed of Helen's body in a vat of molten steel. He said the two mobsters, Anthony and Michael Spilatro, were murdered by the Chicago outfit because of their role in Helen's murder. Now, it was true that the Spilatro brothers were found buried in an Indiana cornfield in 1986, but federal investigators believed it was for skimming from mob operations in Las Vegas. And yeah, if you've seen the movie Casino, you probably remember that scene. There wasn't anything that linked them to the Helen Brock disappearance. So Bailey was probably as big of a liar as he'd always been. Even when he ended his interview with a Chicago television station by saying, I definitely didn't kill Helen Brock or in, was involved in any way, shape or form. Now, was he telling the truth? Who knows? Bailey died in August 2023 and took whatever he really knew with him to the grave. The authorities have always believed that multiple people were involved in the murder of Helen Brock, including Bailey. And since Bailey was a born liar, they're probably right. The truth behind what happened to Helen Brock remains unknown, but that hasn't stopped people from speculating, even as recently as late 2022, when the old Glen Grove Equestrian Center in Morton Grove, Illinois, was torn down. 
Insiders immediately alerted the authorities when plans emerged it was going to be bulldozed that the stables could have been a prime burial spot for Helen's body. Well, there was no question that the equestrian center had interested authorities back in 1977. You see, the facility was under construction that spring and fresh concrete was being poured at the same time that Helen vanished. And we know what that means. Just ask Jimmy Hoffa. Anyway, put those two things together in Chicago, and yeah, it adds up to some pretty nasty business. Stephen Miller, the now-retired federal prosecutor who worked on Helen's case, admitted that her body could be buried anywhere and said the most likely burial site would be a place with ties to the horse community in the Chicago area. But that digging up the property in Morton Grove, even though it was horse-related and close to Helen's Glenview home, was a stretch. There was no actual evidence that pointed to the stables as a burial site. There were just a lot of rumors and stories. As for the Glenview police, they agreed the tip was worth looking into. And once the stables were torn down, they searched the grounds and found nothing. There was still no trace of Helen Brock, and it looked like her story would continue to have no conclusion. If nothing else, though, at least her vanishing had taken Richard Bailey out of circulation and had helped convict Kenneth Hansen of three murders that had occurred 40 years before. That means that a little bit of good came out of something pretty terrible. And in all honesty, I think that's the best we can hope for when it comes to the story of the candy heiress who disappeared. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, let's like speak in tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words?
are we ready to do sure, this? Sure, man. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. That was lovely. Was that? Yes, yeah, that was you. different. Yeah. Yeah, I was hoping I was going to do that, uh, you know, don't forget me when I'm gone song, uh-huh. but then I couldn't remember how it went. And uh-huh. um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather we, not sing that much anyway. We wouldn't. Actually, I think people ourselves. would appreciate I not sing that much. Yeah, now I'm actually, uh, we'll talk later about an album. I'm interested now, but, <laughs> uh, but I'm your co host, Cody Beck. And with me is my uh, uh, velvet voiced uh, co host, oh, yeah. author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey there. What's up, man? How's it going? Good, good. Just starting to get busy. So doing all right. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say starting like, to get don't. busy. Busier. How's yeah. that? There you go. It's like, don't, don't do that. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh man, yeah. We haven't, uh, we haven't caught up in a little while. I probably since we last recorded, we will text yeah. every now and then. But... Yeah, I think that's been about it. So yeah, yeah no, everything is, um, everything's rolling. I mean, it's you know we're coming into fall, and you know how that is. So mm-hmm. you know, busy time. You know, um, our tours in Decatur are already sold out. Alden, Springfield, Chicago are still rolling. Nice dinner events, stuff's filling up. Um, I'm filling up the oh man, I'm filling up the um, the devil came to St. Louis, St. Louis exorcism dinners as mm-hmm. fast as I can put them up. I've added like, what was that? I heard something go that? bump in the night. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what that was, but anyway. Um, oh, oh, oh boy. I mentioned uh, <laughs> I mentioned ah. the St. Louis exorcism. Anyway, yep. yeah, I've already added two uh, for the fall. I mean, they just keep filling up as fast as we can put them out there. So. Nice. Um, yeah, that's it's. Um, I'm excited about it. In fact, um, on the 29th, I'm supposed to be on Fox TV in St. Louis in the morning. No uh, shit. Talking about that. So that's awesome. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming it pans out. Right, know, right. But yeah, right now that's where we're at. So I'm supposed yeah. to be on there sometime in that morning. Yeah, if you know, if you accidentally drop the name of a certain podcast or anything, I wouldn't be like, yeah. Well, I'm sad. sure I will because I I always talk about it whenever I did a something with uh, Riverfront Times and talked about the podcast. I love it. I love it. I had a buddy. Uh, just a couple of days ago, actually, I was talking to him and we were talking about spooky stuff, you know. And he's like, "Did you know like the St. Louis exorcism? Like the exorcism stuff like happened in St. Louis?" And I was like you've i gave you like podcast stickers and stuff he's like holy shit so sorry i was like yeah it's it's okay don't let it happen again but um yeah yeah it's okay um would you do tours like during the week and stuff all the time if it was like feasible or just just only really pop on the weekend i mean i have to i have to be able to get other stuff done at some point so weekends are you know weekends are pretty full up but you know, during the weekend, well, in October, I've got stuff during the week. Right, so, right, I mean, right. I've, I've got that makes stuff sense. going on, you know, all the time. Because I, I was just looking at the calendar and, and shedding some tears over it. Um, <laughs> but I was amazed to see how many things I had during the week. Um, well, that's great. One of the things I'm excited about, um, speaking of the St. Louis Exorcism, is on the 18th, uh, the Edwardsville Library is having me over to Edwardsville, Illinois again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be talking about the St. Louis exorcism, except this time we, uh, they're, they've moved the presentation because of the response, they moved it to the Wildy theater. So it, wow. it'll be in the theater this time instead of just at the library. So can I say yeah. I'm slightly insulted because one year you were too busy to do it. And so I did it and they did not have to move it. Um, and so I got to do my own little speech. Um, it was fun though. I took a, I took a picture, I think of mineral Springs, uh, pool 
And I just like photoshopped um, a kind of a faint image in there. And I showed people just how easy it is to like do stuff like that. But then the next part I had it uh, not like all enhanced and it was the Shia LaBeouf thing where he's like, just do it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, see how easily like you can kind of trick people sometimes <laughs> if you just really want to, you know, pull a prank. But that's awesome. I want to make my way over there then if you're doing that. Yeah, it should be fun. So I'm looking forward to it. So, yeah, it's going to be a fun fall. So and 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 we even have jumped ahead a little bit to winter because this last this past week i put up the uh stuff for dead of winter it's all up there and people have been buying up the the vip packages already so and that's february 9th and 10th so i mean that's a few months away it's not even real yeah i know but yeah we've got i mean it's the free event we always do we've got the vip packages with the reserve seating and the lunch and then friday night uh beforehand of doing a pre-dinner uh a gangster ghosts and gangsters pre-dinner and then saturday night we've got after hour things i'm doing one of the great river hauntings tours goes up to pier marquette for dinner um doing a ghost hunt at the mineral springs um the the sisterhood of magic is going to be there again uh they've got a brand new gallery thing they're doing this time different from the ones they've done in the past oh nice they're great yeah so it's going to be a lot uh, it's gonna be a lot going on and um i think it'll probably be i think it's going to be our biggest one yet so, which means we're going to need a bigger truck uh-huh. food. and some stronger <laughs> so, tables. I'm going to tell those guys, listen, you cannot bring that van. It's not going to work. So they're going to need to bring a truck. That's a good um, problem for us to have. It is though. a good problem to have. So anyway, yeah, we're excited about it. So if you're, uh, if you're jazzed about that and you want to get in on, because the, one of the, one of the VIP packages uh, that we do with the reserve seating, it's already half full since Friday. So, I mean, it's, you know, just a few days. So if you're thinking you might want to do that, um, I'd get on it. Yeah. That's my advice to everybody. I know it's a little ways off, but you got to plan for some of that stuff, you know, ahead of time. So, yeah. And, and yeah. That's and one that, don't, that, mis- that don't mistake do. that it's not half empty. It's going to, it's going to Yeah, yeah up, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that's, that's what's going on. You know, it's October or almost October. So mm-hmm. we've got stuff, a special stuff on our end too, because we'll be doing extra podcasts in October. Yay. Again, get done with the Alton ones and we got to do some extra ones, but uh, they will be within this, you know, this season, though, they Mm -hmm. will be uh, gone episodes that we'll be doing a couple extra ones in October. And then, of course, on the 31st, how do we get so lucky that Halloween falls on a Tuesday? Right. So on the 31st, we'll have our Halloween show. Um, I gave Cody uh, my uh, my list of my my homework list that I've been working on Mm -hmm. uh, so he can uh, look it over, add to it, see what he wants to uh, do with that. And, um, so I'm looking forward to this one. I have had fun, um, watching, uh, I'll, I'll rewatching because everything that's on the list is all stuff I've seen sure. before, but it was a kind of a best of over a, several decades of stuff mm-hmm. with a theme. We yeah. Do have a theme. yeah. We get, we get, we have a good theme. I think we yeah. might even have a, another theme even for next year. We kind of like talked about like, we're, mm-hmm. we're trying some different stuff. Um, yeah. 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 And yeah, we figured instead of doing, you know, horror movies from the 1940s, we'd spare you all that and try something a little different. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to dive into this uh, listener review then. 
Okay. It's, a, it's a little bit long, but it's worth it. And it's it's very nice. It's it's titled um, Amazing. And this is from Love Wednesday. Thank you so much for having a name I could just pronounce as far as your like screen <laughs> name. But uh, it says there's so much I'd like to say about the show. First, Troy, I'd like to say how much I enjoy your writing and your research. I've always had a fascination for ghosts. My personal experience made me feel like I was weird and felt uncomfortable talking about it to anyone. Yeah, I, we were we were children. I remember. Um, and so I remember when you had your, sto- your store in Alton, walking into your store made me feel like I was walking in my brain. That sounds terrifying. Um, I love everything you had in your store. And if I could, I would have stayed for hours. I remember buying the book Haunted Odyssey and among a few of yours as well. Cody, dude, love your energy and dorkiness. So, okay. As I sit around my home office with all my Marvel and Star Wars toys, I'm yeah. a little offended. Um, no, yeah, it says, you should I, see the stuff I brought home from Luke this weekend. Oh, you get like, some good stuff? Yeah, some, yeah. I yeah, I got a lot of Funko Pops from that guy. Uh says, I enjoy <laughs> listening uh, how hard you've been putting into these podcasts. And I, too, I too listen to the very end and love hearing Troy bickering in the end. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not techie techie, but I can at least try to attempt posting a review for you guys. I know you're very busy, but I'd love to exchange ghost experiences sometime. I started this podcast almost two weeks ago, and I can't stop listening. It's helped me in my hard times recently. Anyway, I just wanted to express to the two of you guys how much I love the show, Jennifer, a.k.a. Wednesday. Well, hey, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, Every time Troy and I start to complain about how many podcasts we're doing and stuff, somebody (laughs) says like, hey, this helped me through a hard time. And I'm like, well, fuck, okay, I guess I'm not going to stop. Now we won't complain. Yeah, so, but yeah, so, that's yeah. a good review. It bounces out the one star review we got from somebody who just said, I haven't really liked the show lately. <laughs> I know. Thanks. I, I, that's, that's constructive. That's helpful. Thank you. That's literally what I said when I read that review. I literally out, <laughs> out, out loud just went, thanks. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. OK, I don't know. I mean, hey, well, if, we haven't enjoyed you. I haven't enjoyed your review. So there you I go. Know. Hey, you know what? If, if we're not doing it for anybody, though, you don't have to. You don't know us anything. Don't listen yeah, if you don't want to. Right. And that's I right. hope that, but I hope the rest of you are enjoying that. So yes. are enjoying this. And thank you again for the review. I hope your hard times get better. Uh, let's talk about this. This episode was one where I almost had to whiteboard shit out. Oh, I know. I know. I kept warning everybody. Yeah. I, um, I kept warning everybody that you you may need a flow chart on this one just to keep track of the people. Uh, you definitely need a flowchart to keep track of how many times this story had a twist. Uh, yes, there was that a was twist great. after a twist. And, you know, every time that they would think it was over and there was nothing else they could do, something else would pop up, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I um, I enjoyed this one. I, I knew it was going to be the the wind down of this, I, like I said, accidental two-parter, which was almost a three-parter if you want to mix in the beginning of the last episode, too. Mm-hmm. It was almost a three-parter, but, um, you know, there there was a lot to cover here in the end. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's um, it's a crazy story. And they're never going to find her. Yeah. The, yeah, that, that, yeah. She's she's never going to turn up. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any... Well, at this point, she would have probably passed away from old age by now, but... Even at the time, she mm-hmm. was gone and was never coming back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wasn't. and I mean, and I'm, I was kind of surprised that you didn't make this a three parter, honestly, just because uh, a little peek behind the curtain or whatever. But the the outline you sent me was thirty two pages, <laughs> which is pretty long. Which that's that for us. That's a that's a pretty long one. Um, well, and and I, I know you did what you could. I was just surprised. Yeah, and I also um, I also did like a live read of this one for oh, Patreon right. people. And it lasted forever. Well, I guess everyone's probably noticing that because this part is now coming on at like the after one hour mark, our our conversation here. So it was a long episode. And um, but it was I felt like that it it kept moving along because Mm -hmm. it kept 
you know, it, it kept having twists. I mean, right. and this is, you know, unlike, you know, just a, a, if there had been this many twists in a fictional program, let's say it's just been a movie of the week or something out of the seventies, mm -hmm. no one, everyone would have said that'll never get made. You right. know what I mean? There's just a, too many, too many twists. And then now we're, you know, <laughs> it's almost too many to believe. So. Uh, yeah, no, it's, a, it's, I don't want to say great story. It's a very intriguing story. It is, um, it is intriguing. And yeah, yeah, de definitely the rest of my Sunday afternoon will be spent editing because I saw that file and I was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yes, but I, I, I think we always say, you know, like stories are as long or short as they have to be. Yeah, and and, yeah. and you do a good job of cutting things down. And I know sometimes you really want to go in the weeds and other times you're yeah, like, yeah, mm. I did my best here. No, yeah, I think I think you did a great job and you made it just as long as it needed to be. Uh, I would want to start out saying I love that you dropped the Forrest Gump line in there. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you can't. There's no way to resist. <laughs> yes. Um, and just even this line just had me intrigued kind of from the, the jump, but it said the high profile missing persons case turned into a complicated mess of show horses, con artist, insurance fraud, arson, a 25 year old murder, and the possibility that an animal loving victim literally went to the dogs. I was like, all right, you have my attention, <laughs> you know? Uh, so let's talk about um, Helen Voorhees or Helen. Okay. I haven't listened to it yet. Helen Brock. Yeah. Brock. Brock's okay. candy. Got it. You got you're, it. you know what? You're probably too young. I did. I was thinking. I, I guess Rox is still around. Oh, is it say is, that? Not know. Is it some um, weird subsidiaries now? Or no, whatever, well, or it probably like... is. Oh, I'm sure it was some conglomerate. You know, Conagra or something took it over years ago. But um, it was a big deal when I was a kid. Brock's candy was when we still had candy counters. And mm -hmm. and listen, I'm not that old that we had like candy stores everywhere and every block, you know, um, yeah, from the, the 1950s. Out of my, but okay. when you go, when you used to go to like Sears or which again, you probably did. I remember Sears a Sears stores. at okay. the, in, um, in the Alton Well, Sears mall, yeah. stores and uh, like uh, even Kmart had a candy counter, but mostly I remember Sears having one when I was a kid mm -hmm. and we'd go to the Sears or JC Penny had one too. Okay. And you'd go and you could get candy and bag. You made a bag of candy. It was so much, you know, and Brock's was always a big, you know, the big, but they had the caramels and the chocolates and all that stuff. So, I mean, this was somebody who had, uh, you know, a, a ton of money in the seventies, you know, um, the, the equivalent of, you know, she had $20 million in 1977. And that's a, you know, it's a massive amount of money now. I mean, yeah. in equivalency. So it's not a surprise that, that, that everybody had their hand out at one time or another, pretty much everyone she knew. So. Mm -hmm. And if she's being very generous and things too, I'm sure that mm -hmm. just made it even easier. But so um, her, her, so, so the, the founder of the Brock Candy Company, Emil. Um, so he, is he, he's one of the, seems like one of the few people that. No, he was Frank's dad. Oh, yeah, I'm, Frank, I'm sorry. Frank was her husband. Emil was Frank's father and Emil had started the company. And right. Frank really turned it into what it became. Okay. I gotcha. um, and so then he, um, he ended up, um, you know, falling for Helen. She was working at a country club in Florida. Right. His marriage was already on the rock. So it wasn't even that he was up to anything, even it just, it happened that way. Yeah. And they really, there were, there were no questions about their marriage. She wasn't, I mean, she, yeah, she'd gone down to Florida with the idea of finding a rich husband kind of thing, but you know, that, it, that was the time period kind of deal, sure. you know? And I don't think that, that, I mean, she seemed to adore the guy and became a recluse pretty much after he died. Right. You know, she stayed in touch with her friends by phone, but didn't go hang around with people, wasn't running around. You know, it wasn't anything like that. I mean, he showered her with 
gifts that she didn't ask for you know mm-hmm. he gave them to her because he was crazy about her yeah and uh, i think that i really honestly think they had a pretty good marriage you know and then but you know time <laughs> catches up with everybody right so. well so, so i guess my, my initial question was going to be did did emil like did he did he actually achieve frank. the american dream or was frank. it frank or was it frank that blew it up as well oh yes yes that, that's Emil was... did get did get it started and i think he bit you know he benefited from starting the company but i think it was a more modern day version of it that frank was gotcha. really controlling so and he had some other brothers too because he turned over his interests in the company to his brothers but mm-hmm. he had been the one who'd been the sort of the ceo of the company so got it okay just yeah sorry I, about I, that no you're, you're fine i you definitely need to correct me on names all the time i just was trying to <laughs> i was trying to see like oh that's nice he built this conglomerate you know this huge thing but i didn't know was it the second generation or but anyway um so both kind of like the limps yeah yeah you know, adam got yeah. it started it was semi-successful but it wasn't so william took it over that it blew up same same kind of thing with this. got it um frank's yeah like you said he's you know decides he's going to get divorced back in chicago um and uh they had both been divorced now so i just want to say listeners you don't always have to get it right the first try <laughs> yeah. there's always a chance um and yet like you said frank dies in 1970 she becomes a recluse um she seems like a great person the only thing that pissed me off about the story was when you said she had those two poodles named candy and sugar I don't, that was, was kind of funny though although like, really i mean it's fitting it's a and of course company, it, you know so, i know i mean it works but, you know yeah. and i'm that's why i'm totally giving her a pass on it but i was like, yeah oh. yeah i'm very in generous the, and was going to have the dogs and had the dogs entombed next to her husband in their mausoleum. Yeah. Would you say yeah. 50 grand That's or something for that? 500 grand. 500 grand? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Pink marble mausoleum. She had a thing about pink. Um, if you get a chance, you should look up, um, you know, Frank had bought her those cars, but that uh-huh. Rolls Royce convertible. Uh, you you should take a look at her cars if you get a chance. Just, they're just ridiculous, else, ridiculous Barbie mobile <laughs> yeah, type. They stuff. are something else. <laughs> oh, um, so she's like you said, she's very generous, cares a lot for animals. Uh, she journals constantly, practices automatic writing, um, which I was I was surprised to see some a little bit of you know some uh, paranormal stuff kind of mixed well, in with you know, this a little bit. It was the seventies. Yeah, it was the seventies, and all that stuff was kind of back in again. Yeah, you the know, Renaissance was, of that. Yeah, so I think that that was a big part of it. Horoscopes and all that stuff, it, it took off again in the 70s. So I'm sure that's kind of what got her into it. And then she meets uh, Richard Bailey, who you said sensitive and caring, which is a new kind of man in the early 1970s. So so I would have done all right. They would, they would have thought I was ahead of my time. Um, he sells her worthless horses. Uh, she gets pissed. Yeah, he's threatened. a real prize. Yeah, so one of the questions I wanted to ask about, so I know he was a bad person, did a lot of shit they clearly have evidence of all that um but i was wondering like what is the crime as far as just like setting a price and being like if you want them here's the well, price be- well because he was representing them as, representing them as something they were not okay. um, they were supposed to be champion horses you know this was um you know these horses were sold for breeding and for racing and mm-hmm. so you need a you know you want to have a superior animal for either Mm-hmm. Um, and he, that's the way they were selling these horses to people who didn't know any better. Okay. Um, people like Helen, a, a woman who had a lot of money, who didn't really know much about horses, 
other than that she liked them yeah and all that whole ring of people were doing the same thing mm-hmm. they were selling them to you know rich suburbanites who didn't know you know anything really about horses but these guys were presenting themselves as experts and trainers and you know and so people were investing a lot of money in these horses and they were getting worthless animals and spending outrageous amounts of money on it got it and then another part of the setup then was to you know sell them these horses and then destroy the horses um, either kill them. Uh, I think I maybe it talked about that maybe in the last episode or this one about electrocuting the horses and it would look like they died from colic. Oh, um, no. Yeah. And so uh, they had doctors who would come in and, and verify, you know, the guy that they paid off. That was one of the guys they found that kind of unraveled some of the threads in the investigation. Oh, this, the vet. Yeah. This vet. Yeah. He, um, you know, he admitted to, you know, doing these things and then verifying that the horses had died from something that couldn't be helped. And then they would file insurance claims. Uh-huh. on the horses. Okay, and so, gotcha. Hey, I spent, you know, a hundred grand on these two horses and now they're both dead and the insurance pays off a hundred grand, but those horses only cost like eight, $8,000. Yeah. You know, so it's, that's, that's was all part of the scheme, you know, so there, this was going on on a widespread basis. So time you take uh, one or two of those schemes, and then you add it into three or four or five more, you're talking about major amounts of money. Mm -hmm. And um, it was with the right people involved. It was almost foolproof um, because a lot of times, and, and I did talk about that in the last episode, we talked about them with some of these women, they would con these women into spending all these money on all this money on horses and then would blackmail them. Yeah. With videotapes and letters and photographs so that they, you know, we won't tell your husband because you were fooling around with the jockey or whatever, that kind of stuff. So it was all just part of the one bigger operation. Yeah. Big, big crime ring. Then, yeah. And I'm guessing with a lot of I mean, stuff and nobody knew this at the time. They didn't know it was a big crime ring because sure. at first they thought it was just Bailey and his brother. Uh-huh. doing this and then it all started to unravel and they began finding out that you know he was just a front man right you for know, the silas the guy yeah silas jane and all those guys who were in the background gotcha and i yeah i guess when you're doing that much insurance fraud that's enough money to really get attention then and Absolutely. and i'm sure that then if you're talking about they're thinking they're getting one horse and then they're getting another then there's got to be forgery yeah, documents sure, and things sure. and, yeah it's all fraud it was fraud and blackmail and extortion and just you know, you name it. So right. a lot of stuff. Okay. So she's leaving the Mayo Clinic, which always makes me laugh anytime. Just um, <laughs> with because, a ham sandwich. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and he, so, yeah, the last story she does, she says that the clerk are a little weird. So do you think, do you think she knew somebody was out there waiting for her? See, to car? me, like, you know, I, I reported that the way that it was presented, but yeah. to me, it, I, I wonder if it wasn't mistaken and that she was saying my, Houseman is waiting for me at the airport in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that, because this it doesn't really make any sense. And he wasn't there. I mean, do I think this guy was neck deep in all this? Oh, absolutely. But yeah. he wasn't in he wasn't in Minnesota. So that's just a weird. It's just one of those other red herrings that mm-hmm. up in the story that makes it harder to try and figure out what was going on. Yeah. And if if he is involved in this stuff that he's he's not killing people and stuff, but he's, that's a, a real big piece of shit to turn uh, yeah. like to backstab somebody that's yeah, taking care so of too. you. I, well, you know, everybody wanted a piece of that money. Yeah. Uh, it was just too much money for, you know, a lady that a lot of people thought was a little wacky anyway. And so they didn't feel bad about taking some of it off her hands. So, yes. Yeah. Um, John Mink is avail- uh, eventually able to link Bailey to Helen 
Um, she, so she is a, a declared legally dead. And I don't know. Do you know the like uh, kind of bar you have to hit to be able to seven do years? That? Seven, seven years. years. That's okay. why the judge told him to come back in four years. Uh, it had taken three years for him to, you know, reinvestigate the disappearance. And while he did, I don't know if he uncovered anything, but he certainly opened it up to some new suspects and things. Mm -hmm. And that's really what put Bailey on the radar of everybody. But I mean, this was a guy who was just doing his job. Yeah, he wasn't a cop. He wasn't anything. They were just trying to get to just trying to figure out how Helen would want her money spent. Right. That's all they were doing. Uh, and then the judge, you know, ends up putting the accountant who I think had his act together too. Again, as I mentioned, I think one of the decent people mm -hmm. in this story, and there aren't very many, uh, but the judge just said, you know, Hey, we're going to put him in charge of it. And in 40, and we're going to keep paying the bills the way that he thinks Helen would want them paid. And then in four years, come back and we can, you know, make it, you know, declare her legally dead. And at that point, then they just start taking the will apart and mm -hmm. giving the money to however she wanted that will to be done. Right, right. So side note, I wanted to ask, did you, did you watch Tulsa King? I didn't. I oh, didn't. That's one I didn't, I didn't catch. I, it's, it's great. Yeah. And they start, okay. they start well, to do some horse business too, or whatever, which oh, I'm yeah, thinking about. Yeah about this um but yeah so u.s attorney um stephen miller is, is this guy as badass as i think he is like um yeah he sure seems to be um i mean this is a guy who's really um i mean talk about you know dealing with all kinds of stuff I and mean, every kind of case he's ever you know that you could possibly work i mean he's a federal you know prosecutor so you know i, I think he's got a whole team of guys working for him and all of them are, are pretty hard-nosed when it comes to this stuff, but yeah, he went after, he went after everybody and, and it got a lot of people, yeah. you know, all, all because of this, mm -hmm. you know, all this, this one missing person's case led to all these other cases and all these arrests. It's pretty impressive. It yeah. really is. I wanted to um, ask he's still around. He, he's I, oh, okay. retired now, but he's still around. Yeah. He, uh, uh, I found a quote from him at the end of the story about the, the, you know, the, the concrete underneath those stables last year that they dug up. Uh, and he was like, eh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. And that seems like a stretch to me, you know? Yeah. So at that point I probably would have went, okay, Miller thinks it's a stretch. Forget it. You know, yeah. And, and I guess you I, gotta, I can see why they do it. So. Well, yeah. But I guess at that point too, you also got to think about like resource allocation and stuff and be yeah, like, well, what are true. we going to Well, and he was retired. What's it to him? At that yeah. Point? Other than, you know, they came to him looking for a comment because here's a guy who knows the case better than anybody else. So, yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, it takes them, you know, five years to kind of put it, put together a case. And the more I started to, think about it. Um, I've been watching a lot of videos about, uh, I, I always do this, but I'm going down YouTube rabbit holes of like um, heists and different crimes. And they have like an expert come in and talk about, uh, like a guy was watching all these heist movies and he'd rate them on like how realistic it is and all yeah. that. And one of the things um, that they were, they were talking to a lawyer, I believe it was a lawyer who was answering tweets about like legal questions and stuff. And he said his biggest thing was, um, it's like, I treat each case like I'm trying to basically just tell a story. And I, when I started to think about that more, I was like, Troy would make a really good PI <laughs> because 
so all you do is uncover evidence and write yeah, you stories. Just, yeah, you, you, you piece have it to together. make it into a story that you know that you can sell to a jury. I mean, essentially, that's that's what it's about, I guess. Really. Sure, but yeah, you 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 piece together a lot of things and you dig through a lot of evidence and stuff. I don't know, man. You know, if you ever, if you ever <laughs> well, need it, it's a little late for a career change. So. Never, never, so never. <laughs> um, so okay, so July 1994, U.S. Attorney announced a 29 count indictment against Bailey, who's charged with conspiring to conspiring to murder, soliciting the murder and causing the murder of Helen Brock. Um, and then they, like we talked about, you know, they round up all these other people. Is this, um, is this any like Rico stuff? Do you know? Yeah, is- there, there is. And I didn't, I didn't get into all that. I probably should have, but I would, I felt like it would require too much of an explanation. Sure, but sure, yeah, sure. It, it, it is a, an organized crime type of thing that they were using and connecting everyone through conspiracies. Gotcha. And, you know, with Bailey, especially, you know, they, they knew he was involved but they also knew he hadn't pulled the trigger because he was in Florida. So, you know, they, they did know he was involved. So they charged him with conspiracy and all this stuff. And then, you know, the judge put him in life in prison and then had to revise it. They, yes. made him, he got, he was, I, I'm guessing this judge. Well, I mean, what a stupid move for this guy to make anyway, to try to plead guilty mm-hmm. to just fraud and get away with the rest of it. And then the judge says, yeah, but I think we're going to listen to everything when yeah. you think you did. And I thought that guy's screwed. Well, yeah, you kind and, of said um, he was fucked him before he really. Yeah. The got judge I think must've been pissed and just gave him life sentence, but had to go back and, and revise it. And then of course, you know, they tried to get it turned around again because this other guy comes forward with his fairly wild tale it might have yeah. some remnants of truth to it, but I don't know. I, I could certainly see Ken Hansen and his and his no good brother being mixed up in this thing. I, I can um, because Hansen at this point was already in jail for killing the Schusler Peterson boys, all mm-hmm. because of, again because of this case. And then you've got this other guy who claims to have a ring that no one recognizes and has ever seen before. So it's kind of hard to say if that's really what happened. Although I think the the part about dumping her in a steel furnace, mm-hmm. that might be true. I mean, damn, no trace of her was ever found. And that certainly would be a, let's just say I got a feeling that was used quite often. Uh-huh. That that method of, uh, of body disposal, you know. Ugh. But I did like the part about how he claimed it was the Spilatro brothers. And yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Is that the guys from Casino? So I'm looking <laughs> it up. I'm like, yeah, it sure is. We yes. saw that. I remember that scene. I do too. Uh, yeah. So that's, and they didn't, there wasn't anything that ever tied them to Helen or even Silas Jane and those guys. I mean, I, I suppose they could have been, but. You know, mostly those guys were just got in trouble in Vegas, as sure. we know from watching the movie. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, definitely rolls the dice. Um, and uh, then, you know, it it is a, a very convenient thing to come forward when people are dead or in oh, jail yeah, or, you know, yeah. like conveniently, everyone is dead that he's naming. That's that's the way it usually works. The mob guys get in trouble for stuff and then they start naming names, but everybody they name is either in prison or dead. And right. it's like, come on, man. You know, nobody believes this. Not really. Right. So I don't know. It's hard to say it. it like I said, it may have some elements to the truth. I mean, I said I wouldn't be surprised by some of it, but it seemed awfully convenient, which mm-hmm. is kind of I think I think what the appeals court thought too. Yeah, because they're like, yeah, we're not a little too good so, to be true. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're telling me that Joey cement galoshes pulled the trigger. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. uh, okay, um, yeah. So, but but you, you did say you know while looking for Helen's killer, they solved three other murders, um, which we talked about before, um, and. 
Uh, so, I mean, I guess you kind of got to look on that. You look for any glimmer of positivity in these yeah. kind of stories, you know? Yeah. Um, and well, I yeah. thought it was interesting that when Bailey got out of prison, I mean, it was 90, 90. Was what kind of life is that? A couple of years ago, I kind of updated my, my, my file, my story on this. Uh, about him getting out of jail because he had given some interviews because people wanted to talk to him. And uh, I can't remember who interviewed. I want to say it was Bill Curtis or somebody. Anyway, I, I watched an interview with him and he was saying that he, you know, oh, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, you know. Uh, but, you know, we knew who did. And he did admit that he did scammer, but he, yeah. was, but, but they were in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure you were, pal. But um, I thought it was interesting that then when I, went to work on this and I thought, well, what's up? What's old Bailey up to now? Oh shit. He died like two weeks ago. Yeah. He just died. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. I mean, that just, I that just popped up. So it's like, yeah. Um, he just died. I mean, just died. Yeah. 93, 94. Like that's, that's, I mean, getting out of prison at 90, like, Oh, I know that's gotta be, I know it's culture like shock or like, what do you guy. do? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, that was my last note, honestly, was that Bailey just died. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are tons of things that I, you summed it up and then I summed it up even more. So is there anything else I missed or any points that you think we need to, to no, I, th I don't think so. I mean, you know, if somebody has a question, something we missed, drop us a line, man, we'll, we'll certainly address it. But uh, this was a long, I mean, it was a long episode. It was a long story. And um, there was a lot of moving parts. And if there's something that needs to be clarified, I'm more than happy to do it. Um, but I mean, usually you find that stuff pretty well. Uh, but if somebody has another question, they can certainly let us know and we'll, uh, we'll see what we can figure out. So Awesome. All right. Well, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our new um, subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show to Kevin, Gianna, uh, Frank, Casey, Kyles, Monica, Terry, Carol, Amy, Megan, Lexi, Tyler, Jan, Sarah, Brent, Vale, and Zach. So thank you for supporting the show. We've got some yeah, cool we, stuff out we there. Just, yeah. yeah, we just put out uh, episode 10 uh, this past week. Uh, of the podcast, yes. which is um, Sinister, which is the true story of A.J. Tomes. So if you haven't checked out the Patreon podcast, I mean, you couldn't be getting a podcast every week. I mean, right now you kind of are, but that's going to dry up. Um, we're not going to keep doing that. Uh, the Alton thing is over uh, next week. So uh, if you're wanting to get, you know, a little more American hauntings in your life, then you should get over there and subscribe to Patreon uh, because we are, I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say we're in the middle okay. of this season. So I think we're going to, we're looking at a pretty lengthy season here on HH Holmes. There is still a lot of story to be told and things are just about to start moving very, very fast in this story. Uh, and it's going to, again, you'll need a, you'll need a map in yeah. your, in your room, your listening room for the yes, podcast. You're yes. going to need a map to keep up with everything that's just about to happen. So Anyway, check it out. Um, it is uh, patreon.com slash American Hauntings and uh, be a supporter. We really appreciate it. So. Yeah. And if you're curious as to um, what this series is like, we did put out one of the episodes on the main feed. So go oh, check yeah. that out, too. And you can just yeah. listen for free. And if you like it, then you can sign up and get uh, apparently the other 19-ish episodes that we're going to do. For this <laughs> or thing. so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, it, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. This is titled uh, Lovely and Fun, and it comes to us from Heather. It says, I love your podcast. The way you two work is wonderful. 
I've long been familiar with many of the stories you share, but appreciate further facts that I wasn't aware of and any theories. Thinking often makes people uncomfortable, I found. Yeah, no shit. Um, <laughs> keep up the good work, gents. Also, please come join us in uh, Western MA as there are plenty of legends grown out of some very real, truly terrible history. P.S. Thanks for clarifications on many tales I thought I knew by heart. So thank you very much, Heather. Oh, um, that's yeah. awesome. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you're you're enjoying everything that we're doing. Oh, okay. I'm exhausted. That's all I got. All right. Well, let's uh, let's leave it with um, use the discount code. Yes. Uh, leave it at that. We'll we'll just wrap it up and tell everybody. Hey, listen. If you're looking for books or tours or events or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net, um, use the very complicated and intense discount code that we offer to get ten percent off whatever you uh, want to have at home with you or an event you want to do or whatever. Uh, that podcast code, you everybody grab a pen. Hold on. Got a pen? Okay, paper. <laughs> Sit down. Okay. The code is podcast. That's it. That's all you got to do to put it in at the uh, checkout, and uh, you get 10% off everything. So uh, you uh, you should make sure you use that thing. Anyway, Can I say that's when, all when, I got. when so. somebody, when they initially asked me what the code was, I did have to go into one of the that's why. And, that's and why I'm, like, I'm not making fun of the person. I know. I'm glad. I'm, I'm making glad. fun of you. Okay, that's good. The, good. Yeah. good. I just want that clarified because yeah, I, I just, I just, right. Yeah. I, I'm making fun of Cody on that one. Because so I was like, wait, like, well, what is, is the discount? It oh, is podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you got to keep it simple for me. So, all right. This episode of the American Honics podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it, and you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, as long as it's not Stitcher, or see the website at American hey, I took Podcast. that out, man. Oh, I, it's oh, not I know. in there anymore. I'm just letting so, them know. I'm just I know. know. Find the website AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying. We promise that we're probably much more entertaining. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. maybe. If it's on what you're doing, I guess. Yeah, I guess it does depend on what yeah. you're doing, right? Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. We couldn't, it definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See you later. All right. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. All right, I'll do the thing and then.